nothing is going to last forever. Everything is going to be succeeded by something better. Even if some destruction is necessary on the way, something better is coming. Welcome back. You're listening to Let It Out with me, your host, Katie Dalebout. Today on the podcast, Tom Knowles. He's a meditation teacher extraordinaire. I met through a friend of mine who owns a meditation studio in New York called The Spring. Her name's Arden. She's so cool. And through her, I met her friend Susan. And Susan works with Tom. And here we are. Tom is a very insightful guy. In this episode, we talk about meditation, but honestly, not that much. We talk about a lot of other things. A lot about relationships, letting go of preferences in relationships, and what that means for compromise. Really interesting conversation there. We talk about how to increase time and relevance. We talk about indecision remedies, following charm over intellect, tuning into your intuition, the confidence that comes from doing that, guilt, shame, regret. We talk a lot about that. We talk about evolution and how darkness is an opportunity for creativity. I liked this episode. I think you will too. I want to get to it as quickly as possible, but first I want to tell you about my experience with meditation. I do TM meditation mostly every day. And I've been doing it since 2015, since I had Bob Roth on the podcast. And he's a great guy and meditation teacher as well, similarly to Tom. Tom teaches Vedic meditation, which is very similar in essence to Tia meditation. Somebody gave me the distinction once that they're they're basically the same thing, but just like you would call Kleenex and tissue Kleenex is like the brand name. TM is like the brand name of Vedic, but Kleenexes and tissues are the same thing. So anyway, it's 20 minutes twice a day with a mantra, and you're taught one-to-one over three days, and you get this mantra that's unique to you. And it's very portable, which I love, and we talk about that in this episode, how you can do it in the cab or on public transportation. Today, I meditated on a plane, and... You know, I went away from it for a while because I was going through something really hard and I just like was feeling so much I couldn't sit with myself for a while. Um, So Arden, my friend who owns the spring, taught me this body feeling technique, which I think I talked about a couple weeks back in the likes and learn section of this podcast. But anyway, where you kind of feel into where you're feeling a sensation in your body. But I've been really going back to my meditation. It's been grounding me and I don't know. If you're in New York, check out The Spring. It's a meditation studio. If you want to learn to meditate, they'll teach you. It's so useful, and it helps with stress, which is, you know, we all have stress. So enjoy this episode with Tom. I hope you learned something. And at the end, I'll be back with likes and learns. Thank you so much for being here. If you're new, I hope you stick around and check out the archive. If you've been listening for a while, welcome back. Thanks. I'm glad you're here. 
I'm really excited about this company called Ned. Many of us are feeling the consequences of device addiction, stress, anxiety, and a multitude of ailments. Ned believes that some of the best answers to these ailments lie in nature. All of Ned's products are made from organic, whole natural ingredients. Ned products are small batch and slow crafted. I should tell you what they make. They're a CBD company that I love. Ned sources its products from local farms and communities. I actually got to talk to the founders, which I'm going to put a clip of in a second, but they have this farmer named Kurt who makes all of their full spectrum hemp products. I really love the founders. I love this company. They make these chapsticks that I love that are CBD chapsticks and I love their CBD oil. They're from non-GMO plants. They're gentle, slow extraction. They extract the hemp flowers, otherwise known as the buds, and other products on the market often extract different parts, the seeds and the hearts of the plant, which lack those beautiful aromic features of the flower. If you haven't tried CBD, I think you should maybe try it. It's the non-psychoactive part of hemp. It's not the part that's going to make you high. It's the part that's going to help as a sleep aid to treat insomnia. It's anti-inflammatory. It's a pain reliever. It's been helping me lately with my foot. I hurt my foot and CBD helps. It's really great for treating depression and it has antioxidants. And I just, I I think you guys would really like this product. If you want to try it, you can use my code, which is let it out for 15% off. Again, that's let it out for 15% off. You can just go to hello, Ned, N-E-D, dot com slash let it out that's hellonet.com slash let it out and use the code let it out to get 15% off and free shipping on your order the basic high level is that what we're creating is product that's as close to nature as possible and every single process or every single step along the way is all about how close to the way mother nature intended it is this step and so that's really a filter that we use it's always keep it simple and keep it natural and the goal here is to provide people with an experience that connects them with nature and provides that deeper connection to the natural world which i've found and adrian as well have found it to be just so beneficial I love Four Sigmatic. I always have. I always will. I even had the founder Tarot on my podcast a long time ago. They make these mushroom powders, mushroom products. They have even skincare now that I love. For all of your superfood mushroom needs, Four Sigmatic is for you. They make these delicious, easy to make mushroom beverages aka a wide variety of superfoods that are so good for you ingredients that can elevate your mood and i just think they taste amazing i have their mushroom coffee lately i've been carrying the packets with me and then asking for a cup of steamed milk like when i'm in the airport like today and i just mix in my mushroom coffee into my oat milk 
and it makes a delicious latte. I love their chai. They have the chai elixir, they have the matcha elixir. I like putting their chai into my yogurt. I also, of course, like putting it with milk. My friend Amanda mixes their superfood powders into oatmeal and smoothies. I just think their products are great. Check them out. I highly recommend them. You can get 15% off your order by heading over to foursigmatic.com slash Katie and using the code Katie, K-A-T-I-E at checkout. Really, really suggest all of their products. They even have a mushroom academy where you can learn more about the science of mushrooms. I think you guys would really like it. Again, 15% off your order with the code Katie at checkout. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Katie. I'm delighted to be here. What's your greatest lesson on relationships? My greatest lesson is that relationships are about shared experience. And in order to have a shared experience, you have to learn how to select preferences that you let go of. Mm. That's why I like your name of your work, Let It Out. Because, you know, you let things out and you also let things go. If you can let go of a preference in aid of having a shared experience, that's what a relationship is about. And that's what changes a relationship from a mere ship in which you relate <laughs> into what I would call a love alliance. Because a, a relationship to me could be anything. You know, Iraq and Israel have a relationship, but it's not enviable. Mm-hmm. Um, people can have bad relationships, but you can't have a bad alliance. I like the word alliance better than relationship because in an alliance you have shared mission. And to keep on mission, you have to learn how to let go of certain preferences that are expendable, that are not your core identity preferences, but you let go of the trivial little preferences you have and you'll end up having shared experiences. And if you have that and you keep culturing that, then that, that love alliance just gets stronger and stronger and more and more delightful as each day goes by. So are you talking about compromise? Like what's the difference between what you're saying and compromising? I think in compromise, uh, both parties lose. Mm. Um, you know, they lose something. Letting go, surrendering a preference to me would be something more along the lines of supposing in the early days of a relationship, you know, you want to really explore shared time together. And so if your desired partner wants to see, say, a particular movie of a particular genre, that's not really your preference at the beginning of a relationship, typically you'll just let go of that really fast because you want to spend time with that person. It doesn't matter where. Then we start getting a little more stingy as time goes by. Once we feel a bit assured about, you know, well, we're in this relationship and now they want to go and see a picture that is not really in the genre that I want. And so they can go on their own or go with some friends and I'm not going to, you know, we're starting to get a bit stingy about letting go of preferences. And where in the beginning days, we're very happy to let go of certain preferences because we want the experience of a shared experience where we're experiencing something at the same time. And we very often lose that art that we're all usually pretty good at in the beginning. We need to keep that lively. 
and not get rigidly attached to specific timings and specific outcomes, trusting that in the larger picture, what we're really doing is structuring shared time together. And if we just keep our attention on that, and of course that requires a certain amount of adaptability, and I find that people who meditate have and are in possession of greater adaptability than if we don't meditate, then we tend to be a bit rigid about what we want. This is hitting me so hard. <laughs> <laughs> I just had a relationship end, and I was just telling Susan before we started recording that I'm in kind of this tender spot where everything feels really intense, like someone buying me a cup of coffee is like the greatest thing, and someone mm. not texting me back is like, mm. you know, but it's it's brought richness, and I'm learning from this experience, but I thinking back to the beginning of the relationship where there's so much charm and there's so much ease and then that starts to diminish and maybe part of that is because it wasn't right or it wasn't meant to be but then I think so I've done so much reflecting and so much of it is my rigidity coming up and it's these are things I wrote down that I wanted to talk to you about control rigidity how do you, you, you mentioned meditating really helps, but is there anything else that helps you in relationships to surrender the control and remember that a shared experience is better than a preference? Yeah. Well, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, that was a very good summary. A shared experience is better than a preference. And yeah, I, I think meditating is very important. It gives you the raw resources to do what's needed, but intellectual understanding will suddenly activate what you gained in meditation. So if I meditate, but I don't really understand why it's working for me, then I can't really harness the power of meditation as well as I could if I had intellectual understanding of why it's working for me. If I have a baseline of happiness because I've gone into this state in meditation in the morning before my day starts, I meditate for 20 minutes. And I'm in that state of a serene inner contentedness. That's my baseline. I know that if one's been practicing regularly, you know, however long you've been doing it, I know that's that that's the place where all my thoughts come from. That's the place, that deep inner quiet place that is just it's bliss. It's not excited bliss, it's uh serene, contented bliss. And I have that as my baseline, all right? Now I come out into activity. And there are certain things in the world that are worth doing and other things which are offering little frivolous tastes of happiness, little wispy short-term happinesses. But I'm not going to be easily distracted or hypnotized by those because I am happiness. I have that deep inner quality inside me. And so things that normally would distract me from my mission of exporting my inner happiness to the outside world, those things no longer are tempting to me. And so then what am I into? Well, I'm into having a shared experience because if I'm deeply inner happy and a partner I'm with could have a possibility of sharing this with me, if all I have to do is let go of a little preference in order for that to happen, these preferences are really compared with my unbounded inner bliss that I'm experiencing every day when I meditate. Those little things aren't really, they're, they're only going to be bring short-term 
relatively shallow experiences of happiness anyway, the greater happiness will be to, on the level of being, be able to enjoy my partner's presence and both of us enjoying the fact of the ease with which we're both super adaptive to each other. Mm -hmm. This is how you have what I call artful unity. Artful unity means that you really are enjoying the differences, the relativities of each other. You don't want to have a relationship with, you know, what you are in the mirror because you could do that easily. Hey, I really like you. You're me. Um, (laughs) But we want our deep inner self that is inside the other. My deep inner self and my partner's deep inner self are the same level of being. We like the thin disguise of the differences between us. We want to explore those. We want to enjoy and even joke about our little differences. But at the same time, if it comes down to, will I get a preference or will I have a shared experience? Shared experience always is better. And if you know you can let go because you're already baseline happy, I'm already baseline happy. So if we have pizzas tonight instead of Chinese food, well, I don't really care. I'm happy anyway. Either way, I'm happy. And if somebody is going to be really fulfilled because I let go of my pizza preference and we went ahead and had the Chinese, then happiness is just being exported into the world. Mm-hmm. I'm exporting it into the world. And, you know, rigidity is about I'm going to get my pizza and, you know, you can go and have Chinese and Let's meet afterward. <laughs> um, you know, it's well, lonely. But how much happiness did that pizza give you and for how long? Compared with your capacity just to take your happiness on an excursion into a Chinese restaurant. Let's just go with that. And, you know, so your pliability as a meditator is greater. But if you don't understand the mechanics of why this is working, like the way we're talking about this now, then simply being a meditator Without intellectual understanding, you can't really harness it. You can't harvest. Mm. You can't harvest the effect of being a meditator as well. And this is why I like to talk about these things. Yeah. It's interesting. I I feel so emotional hearing that because I have so much regret of how I chose preferences over connection. And then I also have examples in my life where I did choose to do something for someone else and I didn't really want to, or it was inconvenient for me, or I let go of my preferences and it was annoying, but inevitably I always felt better. And I think it's such a real life example of that dichotomy and how uncomfortable it feels when I am rigid to how initially uncomfortable it might feel to let go of a preference. But I think we're wired for connection and collaboration because things just work better. Can you talk about that? Yeah, we're wired for unity. I think that if somebody doesn't have that activated deep inner baseline happiness as a conscious experience that comes from meditating, all they have is their preferences. They're the only sources of happiness. My preferences are my sources of happiness. And so when Tom asks me to let go of my preferences in aid of shared experience, screw that. You know, my preferences are what I am. Mm-hmm. You know, handle it, deal with it. That's who I am. I'm not letting go of anything. Now, add baseline happiness to that equation. 
you know, that you're going into this meditation state every morning and every evening, twice every day you're experiencing this place inside you that's just like an infinite reservoir of fantastic creative intelligence and happiness and fulfillment, and you wake that place up inside you. Now suddenly, you are not only your preferences. You are that deep inner state plus a few preferences, which are actually most of them expendable. They actually don't define you anymore. It's the deep inner state that defines you. And so then it's easy to have that willingness to kind of let go of something that's relatively frivolous Mm -hmm. because I'm not defined by my preferences anymore. I'm defined by my deep inner experience of being. That's what defines me. And so without that, to say to somebody, just surrender preferences and get on with a good relationship, you know, it's not doable because people really do believe that they're defined by their preferences. That's what I am. I'm the stuff that I want. I am whatever my checklist of unfulfilled desires is. You know, I have a checklist of unfulfilled desires. That's me. Deal with it. If you can't relate to it, go find somebody else. Mm. But, you know, if that's all we are is our individuality is a checklist of unfulfilled desires, things that I have to experience, that's a sad state to me. So meditation changes all of that, and it changes our capacity to let go without sacrificing our identity. You know, if letting go of preferences means I'm sacrificing my whole identity, I don't recommend that. But as a meditator, you change your your sense of what you are, not just who you are, but what you are, goes through a natural change. Then it's easy to kind of let go of all these relative things and get down to what really matters in life, which is, as you said, we're hardwired to experience unity. Mm-hmm. You said on another podcast, or I heard you say on another podcast, that relationships which essentially is what we're talking about now, is like the thing you get asked about the most yeah. and what people want to talk about the most. Mm-hmm. Why is that, do you think? I think it uh, it speaks to the poverty in the relationship field. We're hungry, we're malnourished, we're starving in the fields of relationships and what they mean. We know that intrinsically we are designed to explore shared experience. We're terrified to do it because we don't know what we are, who we are. We don't know where any of this is going, and it's all so ill-defined. Two people meet, and one of the first questions they're going to ask themselves is, oh, I feel kind of good about this, but what's in it for me? And you know, a relationship based on what I'm going to get, what I will receive, is not going to be sustainable. What can I give? That's a whole different question. What am I bringing to this? Mm. We've also forgotten some ancient principles that are present in every ancient culture and the ways that these ancient cultures teach, which is that we need to learn how, if we want to receive a thing, we need to learn how to give that thing. So if you want time, you're going to have to learn how to give time. And if you learn how to give it, you'll have it more than what you gave. If you want love, you give love. If love is what you want, then you're going to have it by giving it. And the more you give it, the more you'll have it. And this is true of anything that's valuable. It's one of the ways that we can test if a thing is valuable, 
that the more you give that thing, the more you have that thing. If the thing that you're giving doesn't increase by you giving it, then that thing wasn't valuable. If a thing is given by you and it increases by you giving it, that thing was valuable. And this is a fundamental law of nature that we need to learn how to give what we want to receive. But socially, our society has become so short-sighted and it has forgotten. It's nobody's fault. It's just a, it's a phenomenon that comes with living in an age of confusion, which we live in a very materialistic age where we give value to stuff and we give value to short-term experiences of self-aggrandizement and so on and you know people liking us and you know we thrive on thumbs up and we thrive on likes and very short-term stuff um little tiny happiness shots that disappear just about as quickly as they came like raindrops in a desert and so we you know nobody's taught us this stuff and we're a little bit afraid to initiate the mechanisms because there are thousands and thousands of books on these subjects and we're not sure which of them are right and they all conflict with each other. <laughs> so, Okay, I have two questions to follow up on that. First of all, can you give an example of your life where you've given something and then you figured out it's valuable because you've received more back? Yeah. One of those things might be, for example, we know that our time is valuable by virtue of you know people wanting to uh, say if you're employed they want to monetize your time. You know, someone might say, "Oh, come and work for me, you'll get fifty dollars an hour," or "Come and work for me for a year, and you'll get X amount of dollars in a year." Mm-hmm. So then the proposition might be, "Well, what if I have a child, and a child comes into the world? I won't have that much time." And therefore, I won't have that much money because the child deserves lots of my attention and time. And so then, oh my gosh, you know, I'm going to end up with no money or not enough. And then the child's going to require certain things and then money's going to not be there. I've heard all these stories for so many years. I have nine children. And I found that every time I have a child, the amount of financial well-being that I experience goes up. It's never gone down. It's always gone up. When I have given time and attention to bringing another being into the world who is an uplifter, uh, someone in the, I, I feel that the world is very much in need of the adult children who will come out of uh, my life because children are being born on the earth. If you watch the, uh, you know, the population apps that show you the speed with which children are being born, something in the range of 10,000 in five minutes land on the earth. Who's going to lead all those people? You know, those 10,000 children who are born in the last five minutes of this conversation are going to require somebody to have some wisdom to help show the way. And if we're like in that thing of, I'm not bringing anybody into this world because you know, the millions and billions who are being born, to heck with them, I'm living my life. And so surrendering that thing of, you know, oh my God, you know, a child, that's going to cost money and, you know, I won't have time and I won't have this and I won't have that. I live 
effortlessly, without any ambition whatsoever, I have no ambition, I live a very prosperous life. I'm very well supported, a life of abundance. And it's just come about spontaneously. And I've also raised, and I'm still in the process of raising my ninth child. I've also brought into the world nine children. And uh, two of those, and about to become three, are meditation teachers, uh, one of whom, my son Charlie, is even f more famous than me. And we have a family reputation of bringing this knowledge to the world. I don't even require them to. I never even asked one of my children to do this. They opt to do it spontaneously because they've witnessed it in their upbringing. And, you know, I have children who are musicians and who go out and sing to the world and activist children, and, and who knows what little Henry's going to end up being. He's about to turn one. But I've noticed already he's watching us closely, his mom and me, and he sees that we meditate, and he's very quiet during our meditation mm. time. So he's even learning how to surrender preferences. Mm, so sweet. <laughs> so we have, to, we have to decide, you know, what we want to be, and then everything will start unfolding, and that's my one of thousands of examples I could give where, you know, a major investment of time and energy as a child. Mm -hmm. And my children all know that they've had enormous amounts of attention from their father mm -hmm. and their mothers. And they're all learning to give back. And, you know, uh, all of our lives are prosperous. Nobody's, nobody's experiencing hardship of any kind. Another thing you mentioned a couple minutes ago about living in this like-spaced society in this world that we're living in now that's so complicated and and strange and lovely at the same time what are your thoughts on social media and technology and our phones and what that does to us on a stress level and yeah i just would love for you to speak on that it goes back to that earlier point i was making katie about in the absence of an inner identity this is what i am you know, that quiet place that's beyond thought, supreme inner bliss, contentedness. In the absence of that, all these outer stimuli suddenly become very determining of what I am. You know, I am however many likes I got today. I am whatever image I'm projecting on social media. I am whatever it is that social media makes me feel because people stylize their existence and it looks incredibly glamorous, and my existence isn't matching that, and now I need to make my existence look, at Comparison. least to me, and it starts to become comparative and competitive, and I don't really know where all this is going. You know, I have 100,000 likes and followers, and actually none of those people even know what I am or what I'm experiencing daily, how lonely, how desperate that can be terrible stuff if that's all you have. But if every day you go inside and you experience what you really are, beyond thought, beyond all these relativities, beyond imaging, beyond all of that, this stuff not, doesn't matter anymore. It can't possibly own you because you have daily reinforcement again and again and again, twice a day meditating, a reinforcement of your inner true nature, and all of these relativities about, you know, suggestions about what you could be and what you should be, 
your hypnotizability disappears. Instead of being an easy victim of the hypnosis of social conditioning and social media, instead of being an easy victim, you're not hypnotizable anymore. Mm. You know what you are on the level of deep inner being and knowingness. And so these things, they're like little playthings, you know, they might give you some relative entertainment for a while, but they no longer act as a form that, although that might suggest to you that this is your true identity, this is what you are relative to other people, good or bad or whatever, how well you compare, that's all very as if. It mm -hmm. becomes very as if because you know from your own deep personal experience what you really are. And it's beautiful, and it finds expression through this nervous system and through this mind, and it finds that infinite creative intelligence finds expression through. And then the social media can become a means whereby you could export to the world those pearls of knowledge and wisdom and happiness that you are, rather than it being something that you use to define yourself. So you're saying that meditation grounds us to not be as thrown off and malleable. And I found that in my practice when, and I want to get into it. I want to like really talk about yeah. meditation a bit. You talk about following the charm, which I think is so lovely and maybe my favorite thing I've yeah. taken from meditating and, and having, I started meditating in 2015. So what is that like four years ago or something? And I've had a lot of charm and then I've also fallen off. I've also had, I think moving to New York, it was really, it's really easy to get the first one in. I never miss it. But that second one, if I'm out in the day, I, I, I miss it. I am like embarrassed to say it on the podcast or to you, but I don't know. I, I guess I would just love for you to talk about meditation a bit for people listening and charm. And then also, I don't know, to be honest with myself of, I am so diligent about it, especially that first one. But then I'm, when I miss a meditation, making myself wrong or making it like. It's a little bit like nourishment. If you've had a great breakfast, very nourishing. Let's just use that as an analogy. Yeah. I'm not taking it literally about breakfast and things. But supposing you've had a great nourishing breakfast. That's the equivalent of, say, your morning meditation. Mm -hmm. But you didn't get your lunch and you didn't get any dinner. You're going to survive quite well. Because the next morning, you know, you'll get nourished again. But it's not ideal. And you do need to uh, take time to at least have another meal in the day to keep you relevant. Relevant is, relevance is very important. When nature identifies something that is consumptive, that's consuming space, time, energy, air, nutrients, and polluting the earth, which we all do. We pollute a bit because we go to the bathroom and things. You know, and there's waste products that come off of our consumption and all of that. And we're not bringing to the process of evolution anything valuable. Then our relevance is in question. And, you know, without any biases at all, nature doesn't have room for something that's consumptive that is not giving back to the process of evolution. And so for us to be as relevant as we can be is very important because nature also has in it, built into it, uh, scavenging mechanisms that scavenge anything that no longer is relevant. This is why our outer layer of skin 
within every 30 days decomposes and disintegrates and scatters off into the wind as little skin flakes. And we can exfoliate if we go to the spa and things, but you know, we need to lose that outer layer of skin every month. It was relevant a month ago, no longer relevant. So how do we keep ourselves highly relevant? For that, we have to have nourished consciousness. And why do we have to have that? Because in the process of a day, the world is so hypnotic. And if we become suggestible, the cruel word would be gullible. But we become suggestible that, you know, the world is suggesting to us constantly what our value is. If we don't restore our inner identity sometime before the day ends, and my preference would be late afternoon, early evening, prior to dinner time, you have a few minutes. Look, I do this. I did it today in a taxi cab coming here to the recording studio. I had a 15-minute ride, and 15 minutes is not the ideal. 20 minutes is better. But it's 15, is, you know, it's three-quarter size meditation, 75% benefit. And coming here to the studio, I said to the taxi driver, this is where we're going. Please turn off the radio. I'm turning off the little video here. I'm just going to close my eyes. And I said to him, because he wouldn't understand, I thought, I'm just going to have a little rest. He said, no worries, man. And I'll get you there. I said, just let me know when we're there. And there I was in the kind of jumbling, moving taxi, but noise is no barrier in a, in a meditation state. You know, you just sit quietly and you you culture a kind of neutrality to all those noises and bumps and jumps. And by the time I got here, I had, you know, that full restoration of creative intelligence because I knew I was going to do two podcasts because this is a second one in a row here in the studio with you. I needed that mm -hmm. to be fresh and alert and relevant, you know, to make myself relevant to what's actually going on in the world. And so we need to gift the world. We need to not commit a crime of giving the world, you know, a partially empty glass of water, a thirsty world, and you offer it. There's a couple of drops in the bottom of glass. That's who you are when you're tired when you're a little overwhelmed by the demands of the day, you're giving the world a tiny drop of you and the world deserves a full glass of you. So you meditate, you fill up the glass and then it's a social responsibility. That's how I think of it, Katie. I think of it as it's my social responsibility to be a full glass. So I'm just going to close my eyes and fill up the glass now. And, you know, when I arrived here at studio, Things had started a little late. I didn't mind at all. You know, if I hadn't had the taxi meditation, I would have sat right there in the waiting room with everybody all around, and I would have just closed my eyes and taken a little dive inside. And so you start to learn this thing is portable. Mm -hmm. You can, in fact, do it right in front of people. You can do it in moving vehicles. <laughs> you can do it on a park bench if it's warm enough. Yeah. There's so many creative ways. It's easier to here it. in the summer because yeah. I never yeah. miss the afternoon yeah. in the summer because I can just stop at a park, which exactly. I love. Yeah. It's been more challenging in the winter, but it it was really helpful for me to hear you say, yeah. because I've been so tied to 22 and a half minutes, yeah. you know, yeah. that mm. I was like, well, if I only have 15, should I even? And to hear that you you did that yeah. and to know that like some is better than none and exactly. just show up. And, some is always better than none. Yeah. Some is better than none. And particularly as you become a more advanced meditator, a 
even a couple of minutes mm-hmm. with your eyes closed and you're there, you're in that yeah. place, far better than none. Yeah. Far better. Let's talk about following the charm and this type of meditation that we do, which is about de-exciting and resting and releasing stress. And it's so simple. And like you said, we can do it anywhere, which is why I love it. Can you just talk about that and how it's different from other types of meditation? Yeah. And this meditation, we don't use the idea of control because there's a, a, a very simple reason. Our minds and our brains are programmed effortlessly to move toward anything that's more charming. So if I'm listening to music in this room and it's okay, but from another room, a beautiful melody begins wafting in that's my favorite, my attention spontaneously will move to the greater and more happy experience without me using effort. And so I don't need to use effort for my mind to move towards greater happiness. It's pre-programmed to do that. So recognizing that, when we want the mind to go from the surface everyday thinking to that deep inner quality of bliss, all we need is a comfortable ride. And we use a particular medium of experience in this meditation technique called a mantra. And it's not just any mantra. There are certain kinds of mantras that work best for this type of meditation. And so the mantra is a sound that has a beautiful, mellifluous, soothing, quiet, quietening quality. When you start experiencing it and letting it repeat, then it will spontaneously get subtler and quieter and softer. And as it does so, the charm of the sound grows, and that's because it's leading you to the bliss field. Do you want to know mine? I don't need to know. I'm just I, kidding. <laughs> I already know it. <laughs> to me, it's like a billboard written across you. Really? Yes. Like, really? You would know it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my, that's my profession. It's like... Uh, Asking a shoe salesman to, when you stick your foot out and you say, what size shoe am I? These goes eight and a half. You oh know? my gosh. Not my I feel so done. exposed. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, but um, the way that we, we allow our awareness to follow that pulsation of sound and then the sound gets subtler, but more charming, subtler, but even more charming. And then it vanishes. And that's where the mind experiences that bliss, that pulsation of sound evaporates. Then you come out of your meditation. All right, now you have that, to whatever extent, that baseline of inner happiness is awake inside you. Now, where is the evolutionary track? That is to say, I'm outside of my meditation. I've awakened that inner bliss field. How is it that evolution what is evolutionary to do or not do? How is it that it speaks to me? What is it that I use to make decisions about, do I go to the concert or do I not go to the concert? As a meditator, we can do something that is not safe for other people to do. And I really want to emphasize that. As a meditator, it is safe for us to feel on the fine level of feeling, where does the charm lie? Why is it safe for a meditator and it's not safe for someone who doesn't meditate? Just to use an extreme to prove a point, someone who is a heroin addict sitting at home wanting their next fix, the charm might be go and score another fix. Not a safe thing to do to follow charm because there's no baseline inside of that connectivity to all the laws of nature. 
when you've discovered that place inside you that's connected to all the laws of nature, it's connected to nature's intelligence, then that place inside you is awake and alert, and it creates a fine level of feeling about where the evolutionary track is. And so someone who was addicted to a drug, who might have found it charming to have even more of the dangerous stuff, they learn to meditate. And when they experience that deep inner place, suddenly it's not charming to go and get a fix anymore. It was charming yesterday before meditation was here. Now meditation's here. That's not where charm lies anymore. And where does charm lie? Charm lies in staying home and having a good meal and maybe watching Netflix and going to bed tonight. Mm -hmm. This is how people get off of drugs when they meditate. The drugs are no longer charming. So now we can see as a meditator, it becomes a safe thing to rely on that fine level of feeling because we keep awakening that place inside of us that's connected to all of the laws of nature, the whole field of nature's intelligence, which is organizing evolution, progressive change. And so you can start to feel what it is inside you that is charming to do. And if you learn to allow that charm to be your navigator, rather than merely relying upon the intellect, you know, the intellect is okay, but it's a little bit like the application, the uh, weather app on your Apple phone, you know, mm. which says, you know, it's not going to rain today. And then it does. <laughs> Those poor weathermen must be, you know, hiding in cafes and things with disguises on. Great because. job security, though. <laughs> yeah, like they, that's right. No one, <laughs> they don't get fired, even though they're wrong. That's what right. other profession yeah. Yeah. allows that? That ability to actually have a fine level of feeling that says, okay, charm says go to concert or charm yeah. says don't go to concert. And then the interesting thing is when you learn as a meditator, you learn to follow this and let it dictate and navigate to you what it is that's right to do or not to do, then your intellect will eventually start getting the picture. Wow, that's amazing. I didn't feel like going to the concert and something dreadful happened there, mm -hmm. and I would have been there. Or I did feel like going to the concert, and I went, and I met this amazing person who has a friendship with somebody else I'm friendly with, and now this great thing's coming out of it. So your intellect rapidly starts to learn to move into a secondary position of rather than it being the navigator, it's the cheerleader that says, and it chronicles the change, you know, hey, look, you went with the charm and this is what happened. You went mm -hmm. with the charm and that's what happened. Or look, you didn't go with the charm and the fine level of feeling said, don't go. And you went anyway and suffering came. Mm -hmm. Um so gradually, what happens is that fine level of feeling gets into a primary role of navigating life. And you learn that that is the thing to trust. That is the thing in which you place your relaxed approach to life and living. And you, you know, someone asked me when I was in India, we had a large retreat just a few weeks ago. And someone said to me, um, do you ever do anything? If it's not charming, I said, absolutely, there's not a single thing I do unless it's charming. <laughs> and sometimes tasks that appear to others to be hard to do, mm -hmm. I find incredibly charming and I do them. And somebody might look at me and say, man, that's hard work. You mean to say you find that charming? To me, it's like playing. It's like, it's like play. Yeah. yeah. What's 
interesting to me. So it's it's similar to intuition. I still struggle with decisions and being like, okay, I'm following the charm, but then I'll question it and be like, is this charming? But this other thing is charming too. And I, hearing you speak, I think it's my intellect talking when that happens. It is. What advice would you give to that? I'd say uh, anything that becomes charming because you've talked yourself into it is false charm. Okay. Charm is something that presents. It is on the sensory level without you having to think the fine level of feeling feels the charm. It's not something that no pros and cons list comes with it. Like here are the pros, here are the cons. And okay, I'm talking myself into it being charming because there's a lot of pros on the pro list and not very many cons. And, you know, this is you hypnotizing yourself into the thing being charming. You know, it's charming because dot, dot, dot. Whereas true charm doesn't require any thinking. You feel it instantaneously. The item on the menu that you're supposed to be having leaps out at you when you look at that menu. So it's like your gut reaction. Gut reaction. See, that I tend to be an overthinker then. And I, like, can I give you an example? Mm. Last week, I was supposed to go to this comedy show. I had it on my calendar. I was excited. And then at the last minute, I was like, oh, I think I don't want to go to this anymore. I'm thinking I'm going to stay home. And that seemed charming. And then I got home and I was like, I'm actually not tired. I wish I had gone. Which one was charming? Am I like, what was happening there? Yeah, I think, again, our intellect, and there's a word for this in Sanskrit, pragyaparad. Pragyaparad means the mistaken intellect. The intellect that wants to figure it out. It wants to figure it out in advance of, and it wants to give its approval, intellectual approval to what you've decided is charming or not charming. And so then, you know, then there's always that intellect wanting to assert itself as, you know, the next day comes the intellect going, see, you should have listened to me. It would have been, but you didn't go if you, you don't really know on the level of direct experience. It's just intellectual conjecture and speculation about it would have been better if I'd gone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we learn over a period of time and doing the research daily that it's rare for the intellect, just like it's rare for a weather person, it's rare for the intellect to get it right. Because the intellect itself doesn't have access to that totality of the movement of all the laws of nature. The laws of nature are in constant movement and flux. What is it that is the right thing to be doing right exactly at this moment might be not the right thing in five minutes. If I hesitated for five minutes, I've missed the window of relevance. And so then I need to learn how to stay inside that window of relevance by acting without hesitation. Just without hesitation, one finds oneself acting. And hesitation is one of the enemies of this practice. One learns how not to be hesitant. You find something charming or not charming, don't hesitate, go for it. Is that confidence? Is there a level of confidence? And yes, it is. And But confidence only comes from experience. And so we have to do the research, including making the mistakes. You know, occasionally we don't follow charm and then we do something that was only intellectually sound. And then it turns out that nothing really great came out of that. And we look back and we say, on the fine level of feeling, I really knew. Yeah. Now, 
that is, if we want to really harvest that. That's uncomfortable. We need to, if we have learned a lesson, Mm -hmm. it's been a little bit time expensive to learn it because days and nights are passing and there are only so many of them in a lifetime. But since we've learned the lesson, let's really pay attention to what we learned. Instead of regretting it, let's just say, okay, well, that was lesson time. Fantastic. Now I know. And, you know, when another opportunity comes, and by the way, it's going to happen within the next half hour probably, another opportunity will come to to go with the higher value, which is fine level of feeling, instead of going with the lower value, which is to try to intellectually figure it all out, you know, and giving our individual intellect so much power when it hasn't demonstrated its capability to forecast anything. I mean, a year ago, we thought we knew what was going to happen in the next year. How many of those things that you thought were going to happen did happen? And how many new things happened that your intellect had no access to whatsoever? Yeah. So one year later, you look back at what you thought your life was going to be for the next year, a year ago. And it turns out that whatever you were thinking, whatever your intellect was forecasting, was not what happened. And so why would we go to that intellectual function solely and say, okay, now figure out the next day or three days or five days or year when its record of forecast is so poor. Right. <laughs> so staying on that then, we're going to accidentally, or I'll speak for myself, listen to the intellect yeah. and learn, which yeah. is fine. Yeah. But then, like you said, it's time expensive. So pivoting quickly and learning quickly is advantageous. So let's talk about things that I'm seeing as hindrances to moving on quickly, guilt and shame and regret. Can you talk about those and how to handle them? (laughs) Yeah. I think most of them are useless reactions to lessons, guilt, shame, and regret. They're not in any way helpful to our learning what we need to do is to grow up a little more and say, okay, you know, I went and started playing with the electrical PowerPoint and mama came and said, no, now I can sit there and cry and feel shamed and feel regret and all of that. Or I can just think, well, she said no for a reason. Um, I guess I won't play with that anymore. Let me find something else. Whatever amount of time we spend in regret, shame, and guilt is actually more of that time, which was a limited thing, that we're wasting. We need to just think, okay, lesson learned. Right, now let me look. What's the next right thing to be doing? What's the next right thing? Where's charm leading me right now? Because this, you know, over-analysis of a past moment and letting the past moment and the fact that I learned a lesson from that The lesson is not, you know, oh, you are now a low and worthless being or how terrible that was that you had to experience that. Guidance happened. We need to look at that and say, guidance just happened. Fantastic. I'm so happy I'm not playing with the electrical PowerPoints anymore. Where's charm leading me now? We just quieten right down and say, what's the next thing? Next? Next is a great word. Yeah. (laughs) Rather than let me go back and have more regrets, just next. Yeah. Evolution is a continuous 
uh, uncompromising phenomenon, it never stops. And it's always beckoning you on to the next level of experience. And so it's important to follow that. Yeah. I Speaking of writing, I wrote a book about journaling, which I, I meant to bring, but I'll give to Susan so you can have one. But journaling and writing, is that something that you do or you do to, to process some emotions? And how does that connect with meditation? Well, I think that a journal is valuable to the extent that we look at it as a chronicle of evolution. It's a chronicle. It is the expression by which other people can share if you decide to share the journaling. Uh, if not, then it's just for you. But it's a chronicle of your evolution. You look at the sometimes amusing, sometimes like really things that you put down in a lesser evolved state, because evolution is a continuous phenomenon. It's um, We're evolving all the time. And then from that, you can see that evolution has in fact happened because this is the way I think now. That's the way I was thinking then. And this is how I think now. When we have that shared experience, we make our evolutionary track relevant socially. It becomes socially relevant because people are able to look at what they consider to be the highly evolved being of Katie. But because she's journaled, they can see that she was once where they are now. And so there's hope. It gives people hope that, wow, I, that thing she was writing about two years ago is where I am now. And now she's talking about this when I listen to her podcast. I can see that there's a track from here to there. Yeah. And I think it's incumbent on us to take any experience we have, whether it's heartbreak or love or realization of being or enlightenment or hardship, whatever it is, to find ways through writing, through journaling, through poetry, through music, through architecture, through any kind of storytelling, we have to take our personal experiences and offer them up and make them relevant socially. This is where our best lyrics come from for music, our best poetry. People who write that stuff weren't, nobody forced them to do it. Yeah, movies, they comedy. offered up yeah, their right. inner experiences so that we can all feel connected and communal. Less alone. Exactly. And then we all have communal shared experience, and we can see that there's elevational theater going on here. There's a status quo. There's a fall from the status quo. There's a rise up to a new level, a new plateau, a little fall from that, and then another rise and then another plateau. And this is the theater Yeah, it's not evolution. linear. Exactly. Yeah. That's... It's a sawtooth mm -hmm. of elevation. I was in Nepal shortly after the terrible earthquakes they had a couple of years ago. And, you know, there was an entire city destroyed that friends of mine lived through that. Lost loved ones, lost temples and structures and homes and everything. And But uh, the one thing I kept hearing from those people was the name for the destruction operator phenomenon in nature is, and when personalized, is Shiva. Shiva is that function that disintegrates and removes anything that has lost its relevance, including, you know, buildings that are shaky and could fall apart with the slightest shaking. And Brahma is the name for the creation operator function, that which invents the new, which innovates, that, that is creative, the creative operator. 
And so what I kept hearing from the Nepalese people was, after Shiva comes Brahma. Mm. After destruction comes creativity. And they were talking about how they were going to build beautiful architecture and city out of the rubble. Yeah. And they're in the process of doing it. After Shiva, Brahma. In other words, to what extent can we start to become aware communally and share the experience that there are cycles? Mm -hmm. There are cycles. It's not just unidirectional that things do elevate. There's a plateau. There's a little fall. There's an uprise. There's a higher plateau. Yeah. And then a little fall from that and then a higher plateau. And as we start to see these patterns, we start to feel in life that everything is actually fantastic and nothing is going to last forever. Everything is going to be succeeded by something better. Mm -hmm. Even if some destruction is necessary on the way, something better is coming. Yeah, I really feel that. Yeah, and this gives us so our, our journaling, our poetry, our songwriting, our theater, our architecture, our whatever it is we're doing, it will be expressive of these truths for others who are capable of seeing it, to see it and share it, and for they themselves to rise into not being backward looking all the time, but to start looking forward. Yeah. Yeah. I started this podcast when I was 22. And I think you started teaching meditation when you were 22, is that I right? started teaching when I was 18. 18, but, wow. Uh, but I, I was quite an expert meditator when I was 20, an uh, initiator of meditation when I was 22. Wow. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say with my podcast, it's been so weird to kind of grow up on the internet, but there's, you really spoke to that mm. as, a, as a personal journal. Yes. It's, yeah. it's interesting. Okay, I could talk to you forever. I have so many things I wanted to cover, but we'll do the rest of these as, as quick fire. So just follow the okay. charm of the first thing that comes right. to mind. I will. Okay. Best thing you've eaten in the last week? I think a donut. Mm. There was a particular donut made at a, at a restaurant in my hometown. It was fabulous. Amazing. Okay. What were you like as a kid and what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? I was uh, a little withdrawn, but if you got me talking, I was unstoppable. I always knew from a very early age that I was going to be a spiritual teacher. Mm. I didn't know in what form that was going to be. I was going to be somebody who helped right the the ship that was like turning on its side. Wow. Mm. A little bit about what your childhood was like. I know it was an interesting experience. I was born in, and grew up in war zones. My father was uh, with the U.S. forces in Germany uh, at the end of the war, and I was born there then. Then we moved to Korea, which is where the next war was. Then we moved to Southeast Asia, which was where the next war was. And so I grew up in the military. I grew up mostly living off base, but surrounded by military people. The backdrop of falling asleep at night was distant machine gun fire, mortar shells going off, uh, jet planes flying around, and that was normality to me. Uh, but I was a, a regular, I had three siblings, and they and I were all best friends, and we were just regular kids, if you could imagine that. In those environments, uh, we just had a slightly more exciting then, but we didn't know it was, and we had nothing to compare it to. And we lived in, I think in my 18 years of schooling, I was in 36 different schools. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> How did you find meditation and how did you meet your guru, Maharaji? Maharishi. Maharishi, Maharishi um, 
uh, came to the United States, and my father had been stationed at the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. He became a general. And his father, my grandfather, was a senator from Arizona. So we were all in Washington, D.C. I saw the word yoga in a surfing magazine. It didn't explain what it was. It just said yoga, and then it had a bunch of pictures of these surfers that were famous guys in bad yoga postures mm -hmm. in wetsuits sitting on a beach. And I asked my mom, you know, what's that? She said, yoga. She goes, it's a kind of a milk product that Hungarians put culture into. And I said, no, no, that's yogurt. <laughs> she goes, I don't know, go to the library. So I went to the library, pulled out the card. I saw autobiography of a yogi, Paramahansa Yogananda. I read that book and I was bitten by the bug. I had to learn this. And then I heard that Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, an Indian master, was coming to the United States. I went to his lecture. I was supposed to be, I thought of myself as a meditator already. I was a teenager. And uh, he said, advanced meditators only. I went into that room. I wasn't one, but I was cheeky. And there he instructed me in meditation. And after that, my progress to wanting to be a teacher of this just consumed me. And so I made that all happen. And with the blessing of my family, the, you know, though my father was a general, in those days, you could be a liberal Democrat, which he was, and be a general. My grandfather was a Democratic senator and someone who was a JFK man, and my father was the same. So they were liberal thinkers with conservative professions, and they were all in favor of this fair-haired kid who had an idea about spirituality, you know, letting me go out and explore. And Maharishi, my teacher, required me to get my parents' permission, and I got theirs and my grandfather's permission and support financially and went off to India and became trained as a teacher. And you taught your grandfather to meditate? I taught him to meditate. He said to me, here's a check. This should look after you for a period of time. Go off and learn everything you can learn and then come back and teach it to me. Wow. And I did. He meditated for the rest of his life. And uh, at the age of 80, when he was passing, he had some blood contamination from a transfusion and it ended up killing him. But before he died, he was sitting in his hospital bed meditating away. And the hospital workers told us that it was the most peculiar thing. You know, we came into the room, he wasn't lying down on the bed. He was sitting up at the head of the bed and his head was slumped over. I said, I know what that is. You know, oh. he was obviously meditating when he passed. So that had been a guiding thing in his life for 20 years when wow. he died. Yeah. It's really cool and special mm. yeah. for you. What's the greatest lesson you learned from your guru? Anytime that you're suffering, it's because you haven't established yourself in that underlying field of being enough. Um, because suffering is based in a lack of perspective. You need to transcend and go to the field of being and then come out of that field and view the whole world with a new perspective. And then your suffering will rapidly come to an end. Mm, that's interesting. So about not feeling enough, we talk about that a lot in the podcast and something I always ask because of my story, we talk about eating disorders, body image, not feeling good enough, same all kind of comes from the same place. What is your greatest lesson on that of pivoting when you 
don't feel good enough or you're having a bad day? My personal take on it is, oh, come on. Really, come on. You know what? You're judging yourself by all these social standards, which are so crazy. Come on, you know what you really are. Mm. You know, go back inside and experience it again. This isn't about what other people think. My identity is not something like a football that's kicked around by the states of consciousness of other people. All reports on me, all reports on anything, are reports on the state of consciousness of the reporter. So consider the source of the report. You know, where is all of these different impressions coming from? Somebody might say to me blatantly, and I've had this done to me in a public lecture, you know, you're a fake, or you are just somebody who's like selling snake oil that, you know, like a vendor of a huckster. And everyone else in the room has heard that, but because they don't think that person was talking to them, they're not affected by it. If I decide that that person's speaking about me, I can be offended. But that person's not speaking about me at all. They're simply reporting on their own consciousness state. That's a report on their consciousness state. And I'm here to help them if they want to be helped to get to a better consciousness state. I don't consider the report to be anything about me. It's just about them. So once you get into this, you realize that you're the only one that really knows yourself. And if your knowledge of yourself is limited just to outer superficial things, like, you know, body expressions and all of that, then you're going to be limited by those relativities and they change daily. You need to establish yourself in being and then remember, that's what I really am. I'm that quiet place inside. Speaking of quiet places, what's your greatest lesson on spirituality, God? What do you think happens when we die? I think that death is unreal. There's something that dies. A body fails to be the doorway through which people can experience our consciousness. And so when our body dies, others will grieve because they had no other means whereby they could make connection with what we are. But when people die... We say they died. That's our excuse for not being able to figure out what they're experiencing. They're actually experiencing. They continue experiencing when their body dies. From their perspective, they haven't died. Something exterior, some old like outer casing dropped off, but they don't experience themselves as being that thing. And so if that's what they're experiencing, why am I saying they're dead now as if they don't exist? My greatest lesson is... Learn how to have at least curiosity about what somebody's experiencing whose body's dropped off. I can't locate them anymore through that body. Does that mean they're dead, quotes, unquotes? That's a cruel thing to do to somebody. You know, we need to develop the, the first of all, curiosity and then the capacity to know what it is they're experiencing because they haven't actually died. Mm. What dies is a body a location, an address, if you like. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. What's on your mind today? What have you been learning or realizing or contemplating? This has been last? podcast day for me. So I've been, you know, this is about my fourth hour of recording podcasts, one a co-recording like this one for somebody else's podcast, one for me and uh, this one. I'm feeling um, the need of the time. I'm sensing from the kinds of questions that are being asked of me 
that this these are questions coming from the collective and channeling through you, for example. I'm getting a sense of what it is that New York and the broader American community need to want to hear and what they want to know about. I'm noticing a theme. And the theme is uh, to do with states of consciousness, what is the truth of the deep inner realities, much deeper themes this time, this visit to New York, than other times. And so I'm, I'm contemplating the meaning of all of that. I have another couple of weeks here in New York before I retire back to my mountain fastness in the mountains of northern Arizona. What's your favorite and least favorite part of New York? What do you think about this city? Um... I think my favorite place is, it's going to sound like very touristy, but I just, I do love that Soho area. And I envy people who are able to live in that kind of Disneyland. That's the, to me, that's the New York Disneyland. That's how I feel too. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I look up at those little apartments up above the shops and things, and I think, what must it be like? And I see sometimes people in those windows and I think, what must it be like to, to live down here? I've only ever spent at most uh, two weeks in New York. I've been here on many two-week teaching tours. But I do love being kind of touristy and going down Soho and that area and getting around, you know, lower Manhattan. I haven't seen a lot of New York, but I've seen a lot of those places. And I have favorite places I love to go to there. What are some of your favorite places? Chitan Cafe which is uh, sounds like a plug, but it's on the corner of, I think, either Spring or Prince, maybe Prince. Some of my other favorites are around uh, West Broadway. I love walking up and down West Broadway. I love the Tribeca area, and I love going down to the ports as well. My mind is the mind of a writer. I love. I look up at attic rooms and things, and I think what goes on in there, and my mind begins to create a tale, yeah, you know, some kind too. of like a a novelist trying to figure out, you know, who lives up there and what might be happening. Yeah. And probably not accurate, but my imagination reels. New York is a very a place very stimulating to the imagination. Yeah. Okay, this is really a question just to to recommend things, but I usually frame it as you're trapped on a deserted island and you can only bring with you one book, one movie, one TV show, one piece of music one food that you'd never get sick of. So it can be a recent favorite in these different categories, but what have you been watching and reading and eating that you want to recommend? I love sourdough toast. Uh, Toast is so good. (laughs) I'm such a toast man Um, with uh, a little bit of butter on it. Uh, And then anything else you want to add on top of that, you know, but that's a very good base. Are you a jam? I love jam bit of hummus, bit of avocado, oh, bit of, you, know, you can either go Toast savory so with it yeah. or you can head in the sweet direction. And in terms of visuals like plays, I'm a great fan of Shakespeare. And I can watch any televised or movie version of Shakespeare plays again and again because that man had a depth in his writing. And so being able to see again and again some Shakespearean play depicted in a film or in a televised version of it i think it's just amazing and there's so much good television right now and a lot of the best of it in my opinion is kind of shakespearean you know there are tragedies and comedies and all of those things which i think you can see that the precursor of many of these themes are shakespearean we in the anglosphere you know the world of english-speaking people which has become a very large world now even as a second language come a very large world. 
we have become experts at theater. The quality of production, of television, of films, and so on, in this day and age, the choices that you have are phenomenal. But when I try to find what their common sources are, I really can't go past uh, William Shakespeare. I think those who get to know Shakespeare uh, would find the same thing. You know, the the, uh, the the best of everything is in that man's writing. It's incredible. He had an incredible life that he could write that much. This show is called Let It Out. Yes. So is there anything that not a lot of people know about you that you think is interesting or charming that you never get to talk about that you wish I would have asked that you want to share? My most precious moments in the current day have to do with my baby son, Henry, and what he looks like and when he looks at me and I look at him, you know, when I'm helping to put him to sleep at night. And my experience of Henry and uh, the tenderness between Henry and my wife, Ariella, these are my true, most precious phenomena right now. Everything else to me is uh, in orbit around that. They get to come with me on tour everywhere I go. And uh, it's just so fun having them with me rather than me just traveling on my own and and teaching to be able to go home to those two is just wonderful magic to me. Yeah. So did I get you for all, did I squeeze all the juice out of you in this in this conversation? Probably not. I, I have another five <laughs> hours in me at least. Great, me too. Yeah. We'll have to do this again. <laughs> we will. So that's, all that says is uh, this is a preview of coming attractions. Great, great. Well, we always end this podcast letting out a deep breath together. So right. are you down? I'm down. Okay, ready? Inhale. Exhale, let it out. <sighs> I think my exhale is a lot longer than yours. Yeah, maybe we should start over. Okay, start over. Okay. That always feels a little better. It's great. Yeah. A deep sigh always feels good. Almost mm. like a meditation. Mm. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much. This was lovely. It was so nice to talk to you. Thank you for all your time. It's a great pleasure. And uh, my greetings and happiness to all your listeners. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That was my episode with Tom. Let me know what you think on Instagram. My name is at Delbau. Oh, and we're doing this new thing where we're sending out the show notes after the episode. So you can get all the things we reference and talk about, which there wasn't much this week, but you can get that email to you and other updates and whatever we send. So make sure you're on the list for that. That's different than my let it out letter, which is something I write monthly. That's links to things that I've been liking and finding interesting on the internet, articles and videos and a personal essay from me and it's a, like a fun little newsletter I write. So if you want to be on that list or the show notes list or both lists, you're welcome to. Okay. Every week I share something I'm liking and something I'm learning this week. What I'm liking is the word terrific. I'm actually back in Michigan right now because my grandfather died. My dad's dad. I just lost my mom's dad, my other grandfather a couple months ago. And it's really sad to see a parent lose a parent, really, is the main thing. He lived a great life, and he was, you know, very old, but it's still really sad. Anyway, he used this word terrific a lot. You'd ask him how he was, and he would say terrific. And I want to use the word terrific more because of my grandpa. So that's a word I've been liking. 
I've also really been liking this writer named Melissa Broder. She's a poet. She tweets at So Sad Today. She has many books, book of essays called So Sad Today, and a novel. She has a podcast called Eating Alone in My Car, and I love it. I think she's so brilliant and really cool, and I want to have her on my podcast. What I've been learning, I've been learning to try to be less of an asshole, honestly, and to be more present with people, to really listen to people, and I think death softens people and puts things into perspective in a way, and just hard things in general do that, in a way that, you know, you can get stuck in the mundane of of life, and when hard things happen, I've been having a lot of hard things. I hurt my leg recently, I sprained my ankle. And, you know, my grandpa died, my other grandpa died, and I broke up with my partner. And it's just been like lots of little things. They're kind of big things, and it puts things into perspective. Anyway, I've just been trying to focus on how I can be really present with the people that I'm with and actually listen. Gary Shanling had this quote where he says, it's something like, I get to know myself so I can stop thinking about myself and start thinking about other people. And I feel like that's really the place I'm in. I'm, I'm so sick of improving myself and learning about myself. And I think all those things are useful, but really I want to be able to be more helpful to other people and more present with other people, my family, my friends, you guys, my friends, you guys are my friends. Anyway, it's just something I'm chewing on, learning in the moment. And maybe it's useful to you in some way, hopefully. This episode is supported by Four Sigmatic. I use their products basically every day. I always have them in my bag. I'm always giving them to friends because they've really helped me in my life. They make mushroom products. So these aren't button mushrooms or shiitake mushrooms, although I love those too. These are superfood mushrooms like lion's mane, chaga, reishi, and they do different things. There's some that make you calmer, some that add energy. And I've actually had the founder of this company, Taro, on my podcast, and I've actually known him for years. What's cool about Four Sigmatic is they make these delicious elixirs. There's a matcha one, there's a coffee one, there's a hot cacao that's maybe my favorite. There's a hot cacao that even has some cayenne in it. It's a little bit spicy. I love that one. And they have a chai that's maybe my favorite. Amanda loves putting the chaga elixir blended warm with some coconut milk. I like having mine with macadamia nut milk. I even put them in my yogurt. You guys, I love all their products so much. I really, really do. I'm not just saying that. And I honestly think that you guys will too. If you haven't tried them yet, this is the week to try them. You can get 15% off your order by going to foursigmatic.com slash Katie and make sure you use the code Katie, K-A-T-I-E at checkout. That lets them know that I sent you. Also, it will give you your 15% off discount. Their chai, if you like chai, it's my favorite. It doesn't have all of the sugar and sweetness that some of the chais that I've had before 
have and it's nice to have one that I don't get the sugar crash or the sugar headache with but tastes amazing and has some extra superfoods in it as well. So check it out. Check out all of their products. They also have a Mushroom Academy on their blog that you can go in and actually learn about the science behind these mushrooms. So if you want to learn more, check that out or check out my episode with Taro. I love this CBD company called Ned, N-E-D. Here's why. They are great. They make all their products from organic, whole, natural ingredients in small batches. They're slow crafted. I love the founders. I even talked to them on the phone recently, which I'll stick a clip in in a second. But first, let me tell you that they make everything seed to bottle. All of Ned's full spectrum hemp products are energetically infused with love and gratitude and positive vibrations. They have this farmer named Kurt who grows all of their products and he seems like a really cool, nice guy. Everything's non-GMO and if you've never tried CBD, maybe it's the time to try it. Everything is hand harvested, hand trimmed. We're only extracting from hemp flowers, so the buds, you know, where again, status quo is to take the entire plant, stalks, stems, seeds included, and throw it into a extractor and blast it with heat and pressure and get as much extract out as possible. We took the opposite approach, which was to do a super cold, food-grade organic ethanol extraction that takes significantly longer and is not as, certainly not as efficient cost-wise. But at the end of the day, it really upholds the biological integrity of the plant. It's been helping me. CBD is the non-psychoactive part of cannabis. So it's not going to make you high. Instead, it is something that helps you sleep. It's been something that helps treat insomnia. It's a natural pain reliever. It's anti-inflammatory. It can help with depression. It's a rich source of antioxidants. There's lots of other benefits. Try it out. See what you think. You can get 50% off your order by using the code Let It Out at checkout. Again, that's Let It Out for 15% off your order. Just go to www.hellonedned.com slash let it out to get 15% off and free shipping. All right. Support the sponsors if you like this episode. Really check out Ned and Four Sigmatic because they make this show possible and it'd be really cool if you gave them a shot or if you've tried them before try them again i think that'd be cool i will talk to you guys next week the emoji for this episode is the yoga looking person person like sitting kind of like they're meditating tweet that at me comment it on my instagram i'm at katie dalebout if you want to follow me that would be nice talk to you guys next week bye